But today is our second message on the subject of when we've been wronged. When we've been wronged, as we've been continuing here in Romans, uh, Romans chapter 12. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the text, I'm going to give a quick recap, and then we are going to address some common challenges to applying Romans 12 when we've been wronged. So here's what the text says, verse 17, Romans 12. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You know, if you're a Christian here today, I think that you would uh, acknowledge that becoming a Christian is a glorious experience. Being a Christian is a broke, in a broken world is difficult and dangerous. It's kind of like a description I heard of marriage once that said, you know, marriage is like a walk in the park, Jurassic Park. Uh, and I would say that being a Christian is a little bit like that. It's like, you know, living in a broken world with, with, filled with uh, all the sins and sinners and all the rest. It, it's like walking through Jurassic Park. And the point is, eventually, you're going to get bit. You are going to get bit. And these wounds, they come on a spectrum, don't we? We have like small slights, small offenses, all the way up to the other end, very painful betrayals, persecution, and even physical violence. And the text here, and frankly many others in Scripture, emphasize that avoiding wrongs against us is impossible. But how we respond to those wrongs is something that is entirely our responsibility and something that God is very interested in. And his summary here is, repay no one evil for evil. Now, why do you think the Bible has to say it that way? Well, because the natural response when somebody has wronged us is to want to do what? To get him back, right? Oh, I'm gonna get him back, I'm gonna get her back. She's gonna get what's coming to her. We wanna get even. And we, there's something in our hearts, we relish the payback, do we not? We love it. Now, Romans has been describing for us the gospel. And Romans uh, and the gospel is set, telling us that God's salvation is not God giving us what we deserve. It is God giving us what we don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. And the gospel is both God's mercy and God's grace. In this, God gives us an ethic. This is a paradigm of how we are now to live out the gospel in, in horizontal relationships with other people. We are called to treat people the way that God has treated us. Are you with me? I've not been able to say that for a while. Nod your head. Okay, good. <laughs> for two and a half months, I've had no idea if anybody was with me or not. I just kept going. <laughs> Maybe that's what I should do right now. I'm just gonna keep going. Okay. But we live in a culture that is constantly offending, constantly wronging. 
And so Romans 12 comes along and it says this, if possible, live at peace with everyone. Don't avenge ourselves. Why does it say that we don't have to do that? The text says because God will repay, that God is the avenger, God is the hero. And how he does this, we saw last week, is he does this through governmental authorities. He's gonna say that here in chapter 13. He did it on the cross and he does it in hell. So three options, jail, cross, hell. That's how God repays the wrongs that are done against him and therefore the wrongs that are also done against us. But if we believe that, we are freed from feeling like we have to take matters into our own hands, that I've got to be the avenger. I've got to suit up, I've got to go, and I've got to make things right. No, I know God's going to make it right. He's promised he's going to make it right. Therefore, I can scooch over, if you remember that Greek word, make room for God's wrath. I can just step back and say, okay, God, you know, blast him. Maybe not that way, but you know what I mean. Like, you, you make this right. I'm trusting that you will make this right. Now, let's just admit something right now. That's a lot easier to, do than, uh, to say than to do. It's, it's a lot easier to uh, preach it than to walk it. And I'm saying that standing right here myself. It is a very difficult thing to do. And Paul summarizes now the whole ethic here, the kingdom ethic of non-retaliation, with these words, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Overcome. This is that, uh, that Greek word. We saw it in Romans 8 when he said, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It is that Greek word Nike. Yeah, like the shoe company. Nike, what does it mean? It means to win. Okay, to win. We insert that here in our little definition, and it, what is it saying? Do not let evil win, but gain victory over evil by doing good. So what's his emphasis here? Note that he doesn't say, let evil win. We are not people that celebrate evil. We don't, we don't, we're not happy when evil happens. And we certainly do not want evil to win. And God assures us that evil will never win. Okay, So not, retaliate, not retaliating is not letting evil win. Now, it may feel to us like that. Like, I'm just letting him win in this. She's, she's gonna think that she won if I don't do something about this. It feels like the other person is winning in it. And sometimes that other, the opponent will, you know, they'll trash talk, they'll give a little victory dance, and not retaliating is a way to fight evil without giving in to evil. And that's the concern here. Okay, when, when, a, when a Christian is wronged, when evil is done against us, there rises within us a sort of self-justification that I get to, now I get to do it back to them. And if I don't do it get back to them, then, then evil is going to win, and I can't let evil win in this world. I'm the avenger. And yet, how does evil actually win? The text here says that evil wins when it, uh, when it motivates us to do the evil we despise in the other person. When I become, in my response, the very thing that is upsetting me about what they did to me in the first place. Evil wins when it makes me do evil too. And it overwhelms us by turning us into the very thing that we despise. So, what is the text saying? It's, it's not saying let evil win. Rather, it is saying that we overcome evil by responding to evil with the opposite of evil. Did you get that? 
Let me say it again. We overcome evil by responding to evil with the opposite of evil, which is good. Now, some of you right now are hearing that. You're like, that won't work. (laughs) You do not know the person I'm dealing with. I promise you that will not work. Really, is this person more uh, devious and diabolical than uh, death or Satan or sin? Because if we ask the question, how did God overcome sin and death and Satan? What did he do? Did he, did he sue Satan? Did he slash, you know, did, did, he, did he slap around some demons and slash their tires? No. God defeated evil with love on the cross. God defeated evil with good. The goodness of God displayed in the sacrifice of Jesus. God overcame evil with good. And that is the paradigm that Paul is saying, this is how we are to live our lives in a world that is constantly offending us and wronging us. And evil is done against us. That the ultimate victory of the cross is a paradigm for all the little skirmishes that you and I have in our life. What are we to do? We are not to give in to evil. We are not to become evil. We are not to do evil. Rather, we gain the victory over evil with good. Now, here's my summary of everything that he's been saying here. What are we called to do? We are to live our lives with unconditional kindness. Unconditional kindness. Now, I'll let you judge whether that is a good summary of the language here in Romans 12 where he says that we are to do what is honorable no matter what, that we are to live peaceably with all men, that we are to provide food and drink for our enemy, and that we are to overcome evil with good. I summarize all of that. I think what he is saying is we are to live lives of unconditional kindness. And again, this is so opposite are like the, the way that we are, are wired, okay? Our natural response when somebody does something wrong against us is payback. Oh, I am gonna so pay her back. I'm gonna settle this score. I'm gonna get even. He's gonna get what's coming to him. One of these days, Alice, one of these days. I just dated myself by doing that. <laughs> But in big and small ways, the currency of our world is is payback. And this is part of what makes Christianity and normal Christian living so radical in a world of payback is that we refuse to settle the score. We refuse to give in to that desire to, to make things even. We recognize that God, his payback was Jesus. His payback was the cross. The one who didn't wrong God took God's wrath for all our wrongs upon himself. And we believe that gospel, our hope for eternity, is in that truth. And we express that same gospel ethic when we are wrong and for Jesus' sake, we choose kindness instead of revenge. And so that's the truth I'm I'm pressing into our, our church culture here and into your heart today is as a Christian to have a posture in the day-to-day of life of unconditional kindness. So what I wanna do is I wanna get practical now with what that looks like in some common categories where we are wronged. 
Okay, so how should we do this? Here's the first one. I have been physically injured by somebody else. What should I do? Well, I would recommend that you sign up for MMA lessons and pray that God allows you to meet that person somewhere in a back alley. I mean, amen, right? That's Christianity, isn't it? Well, I don't think so. The Christian way is non-retaliation, unconditional kindness. Now, you might be sort of like, hey, that was Paul. Like, that wasn't Jesus. Oh, really? Let me tell you what Jesus said. Here's what Jesus said. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. That's a troubling verse, don't you think? Nod your heads here. I haven't seen a nodding head in a while, thank you. Uh, That's a troubling verse. I mean, really, Jesus? If somebody hits me on one cheek, you're saying, like, don't, don't, like, turn his cheek with my own blow? Like, what are you saying here? Well, this is a debated phrase, and I think we have to understand the broader point. is the same thing that Paul is saying here, is that our posture in our life is unconditional kindness, which means not returning evil for evil. Now, here's how it works in our house sometimes, once a year. My oldest daughter whacks my youngest daughter. My youngest daughter whacks her back. But as is often the case, as as, uh, younger siblings know, parents don't see the oldest whack, they see the younger child whack. And so we say, Madeline, why did you hit your sister? And she says, of course, because she hit me. Now, we've been trying to teach that at the house, right? That if somebody hits you, you just hit them back. That's an ethic we've been, no, no, of course, we don't have to teach kids to do that. But the point I'm making is that there is an instinct in our hearts that justifies whatever somebody does to me, I am now morally and ethically, I've got the clear path to do whatever they've done to me back to them. We don't have to teach it, it's just like, it's in our nature. Now, if somebody slaps you in the face, there are many options that don't include punching them back, including standing your ground but not retaliating, walk away, run if necessary. Now, you may turn the other cheek if you would like, but I think it might be best to get your cheek out of there as fast as you can. Now, I want to stop for a moment and say a cheek slap is much different than a gunshot or a knife or something that is threatening your very life. You know, if someone is going to try to kill you, do you have to let them? No. If somebody's doing violence against a family member, do you just let that happen? No. There are other principles in the Bible as well, including the sixth commandment, which says that life is precious and life is worth protecting. And so don't just singularly look at this issue through this one lens. Human life is valuable, including my own life, okay? So turning the other cheek is not an absolute in all situations, no matter what, but it does point out that evil against us is not permission for us to do evil against them. No. What should I do? I should overcome evil with good. Second category, I've been swindled. What should I do? 
Now, I gotta tell you, looking at a room full of masked individuals, this somehow seems appropriate to me right now. And I'm not sure where I put my billfold, but I'm gonna check as soon as the service is over, looking at the, the group here. But what should I do? I've been swindled. Uh, how, do I, how do I handle this? And, 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 and frankly, I, I haven't been hit in the face that often. But over the years, I can think of a handful of fairly significant financial wrongs that have been done against me. And if you're like me, it doesn't, it's not very hard for me to remember them. When somebody steals from you, cheats you, those things have a way of sticking with you. These dishonest people who somehow chose to take advantage of the nice young pastor. I mean, what can he do? He's a pastor. Well... This is somewhat true. None of these have taken me under, but there's been some doozies along the way. Did I sing the hallelujah chorus when somebody cheated me? No, I did not. I was angry. I was hurt. I was tempted to mention from the pulpit this business and what they did as delicious payback for them in the community. I had that thought one time, just once, of doing that. The point is this, when people defraud you, it's a hard wrong to get over, isn't it? And it sticks with us and we remember, we remember financial wrongs. And these kinds of wrongs, there's lots of categories for this. They include stealing, theft of possessions, embezzlement, identity theft, unjust estate settlements, family money squabbles. I'm sure none of you have ever had any of those. Dishonest money managers failed uh, integrity on many levels. You know, even our church, you know, many years ago, our church suffered, uh, at no fault of our own, in a construction project, a very substantial financial loss because of something like this. And it's money loss that we are still paying on all these years later. And what do I say to that? It's one of the things that happened in this world that we live in. Unfortunately, and they can be very complex, and I don't mean to gloss over the challenges that, that go with this, but what should we do? Does the principle apply? I think it does. What should we do when somebody cheats us? Does unconditional kindness mean that you keep doing business with them? No. Does this mean that you trust them still? No. Does this mean that you uh, like their business on your Facebook account? No. Do you, do you not fire the embezzling employee because you want to be kind to them? No, you fire them. Are you required to send Christmas cards to them? No. Does Romans 12 apply when you've been defrauded? Yes. Yes, it does. Now, does this mean that we can't seek legal avenues for justice to be done? God obviously cares about justice, and so... Uh, we, we certainly can, can do that, but that's a complex question as well. Again, I want to remind you in a few verses we're going to get into the role of government in Christianity. It's going to be really, really fun, somewhat probably controversial, but we're going to get into that. Uh, but we acknowledge the fact that Caesar rules over us, and there are legal avenues that Caesar provides and that God has used, uses Caesars in order to get justice. But here is a very important question when you have been cheated by somebody and you're thinking about suing them, is this person a Christian? Is this person a Christian? You say, well, why would that matter? Here's why. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, and I think there's many people that somehow don't know 
this passage of scripture. Here's what he says. When one of you has a grievance against another, so he's writing the church at Corinth, these are two Christians, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you not competent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Why do you go to the world and the, uh, the courts of the world? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute um, between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? You get that last verse? Now that's just downright un-American, isn't it? To allow somebody to defraud you and to not get what's coming to you. We live in this litigious culture where anybody will sue anybody for anything. If they think they can get a, a dime out of you, they're going to take you to court. And that's sort of the right thing to do. Well, Paul comes along here and says a very radically different approach amongst Christians and by the way, again, Paul is not saying that Christians should never use the legal system. Paul himself used the legal system when he appealed to Caesar, Acts 25. He is also not talking about criminal matters because criminal matters fall under the, the realm of Caesar and the, and, and the role of government to restore justice. What he is talking about here is he's talking about civil matters. He's talking about grievances He's talking about disputes amongst two parties. Most of these, by the way, they fall into the categories of my rights, my name, my money, and my property. And in those categories, is it right for one Christian to sue another Christian in the public courts? And this is a complex matter in the uh, you know, sort of corporate world that we live in. And I would urge you, if you really want to press into this, go to Peacemaker Ministries and see what they have done. They've done wonderful work kind of sorting through all of this. But the broad answer is no. Christians should not, in the public courts, sue one another. Does, does that mean justice can't be done? No, it doesn't mean that. Paul is saying here, these things should be tried and, and reasoned within the church. And there, isn't there a wise person? Aren't there elders in the church who can settle matters of dispute? This is known as Christian uh, uh, mediation. And the answer to that is yes. And our church is involved in those things uh, from time to time. And I just want to put it before the church family that we should not be suing each other. We should not sue other Christians. We should rather go to the church and seek justice and seek wisdom in these matters. Paul ends with the same Jesus, the same point that Jesus makes in turning the other cheek. He says, why not just choose to be wronged? Why not choose to be defrauded? Did you get that? Like, again, if I think that God is going to make this up, that God is going to make this right, I can, I can choose to be defrauded and know that God's, God's got my back in this, that God, God can make God can make this right. You know, when the dollar is your God, you'll sue any chance you get, and you'll sue anybody you can. But when God is your God, we are willing to suffer loss 
for the sake of Jesus' name. So where does our heart go in our desire for justice when the ethic is Christian non-retaliation? Again, it goes to Romans 12. God will repay. It is his promise. And where will he do it? Jail, cross, hell. Nobody gets away with anything. That's one way to look at it. Nobody gets away with, with anything. Now, I, I remember one time years ago, I had a situation where I was convinced that I was being taken advantage of. Uh, and yet, to not pay would have reflected badly on the church and would have reflected badly on me. And I was in this conundrum on, you know, what to do. I wasn't happy about it. I totally felt like I was being gouged. But I wrote the check. I went to the mailbox. I put it in. I walked back to my house. Did I do so with a smile on my face? No. Was I singing the hallelujah chorus? No, I was not. I was not happy about it at all. I got back to my house, and within a couple of minutes, my phone rings. And on the other end is my tax preparer. And he says, hey, I just realized I made a huge error when I put your taxes together. You're actually going to get money back from the government. Really, how much? And he told me how much it was, and it was within a few dollars of exactly the amount I had written in the check and just put in the mailbox. And then I broke into the Hallelujah Chorus right there at that point. Now, does God always do that? No. In fact, I have some other doozies that come to my mind that to this day never been reconciled. He doesn't always do that, but he certainly can do that. Do you know God has plenty of resources to make up for the wrongs that people do against us? He's got, he's got everything he needs. And when we, as an act of worship and for the sake of Jesus' name, choose just to be wronged in order to ensure that Jesus' name is not drugged negatively through the public courts, God certainly can make it up to us. We can trust him. Here's a few questions to ask if you're in a situation where somebody has cheated you. Is this worth the time, distraction, and emotional toll to seek justice? If you've never been in a lawsuit, it sucks you dry. Is it worth it? You have to ask yourself. Secondly, will doing so shine a negative light on my testimony for Jesus? What's that worth to you? I told you the story last week about being in line behind the uh, former member of our church as he berated the checkout lady because she, she double-charged one of the grocery items. Made a huge scene, went off in a huff, and I, I made the point. I said, What's, what was the value of his reputation and the testimony of Jesus to him? I estimated it to be about $2.99. How valuable is your reputation and your testimony for Jesus in your life? What are you willing to just be defrauded to keep that where it should be. Thirdly, is there a kindness that I could do that would draw the other person's attention to my faith in Jesus? Again, the Christian ethic is not, not that I don't do anything, but rather I do good instead of the evil. Is there some good that I could do here that would be completely unexpected and that would maybe draw that person's heart to see Jesus in a new light? And finally, can I bring myself to do it for Jesus' sake? four questions to ask when I've been swindled, okay? So when I've been physically injured, when I've been, when I've been defrauded, here's the third category. I've been slandered. 
What should I do? I have been wronged with verbal uh, words. What should I do? What is slander? Slander is verbal wrongs, maybe written, you know, things, words that besmirch my character, things that are not true, things that are said with evil intent. And these words are also incredibly painful, are they not? I remember, and I'm sure many of you did as well, growing up on the playground, you know, if somebody was taunting one person, the other person would say, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Is that true? Obviously, that is not true. Words are very, very painful and very offensive. And people say lots of things. And because people are generally cowards, they will say these things largely behind our backs. They will say things behind backs that they would never say to the face. This is slander. This is whispering. This is insinuation, lies, gossip, backstabbing. Sometimes they go public with these things. Sometimes they will say it in a public setting. Social media, I think, gives uh, slander steroids, like in ways that 50 years ago, somebody could say something, it had no effect. But now it's said, and it, it can go around the world on social media. Have you ever been slandered on social media? How's that feel? I can tell you how it feels. I've been through that. We all experience this on one level or another, at work or in our family settings, our extended family settings, maybe even in our home. What does unconditional kindness look like in the face of slander? Well, let's just face it. It is easy when somebody says something verbally against us, confronts us verbally, what do we wanna do? We, we, wanna, we wanna punch back verbally. Oh yeah? Is that what you're saying? And now you come in with, you know, you come in with the right hook. I'm gonna tell you something right now about you. And on this sort of thing goes and it builds. Now let's be honest here, we all have qualities worthy of slander. I didn't expect an amen there, but you all should probably amen that. We all have qualities that if other people really knew us and knew our hearts and wanted to say something negative that was accurate and truthful, we all have plenty of those qualities that are deserving of a negative critique. Okay, I heard one amen. Thank you, it's so refreshing, I love it. I think this is why in family, gossip and slander is so uh, powerful and, and volatile is because within a family, everybody knows everybody else's dirty laundry. And so when one family member assumes the higher moral ground in order to judge another family member in something that she's doing right now, the other family member has plenty of ammunition on the accusing family member to bring the heat back at her or him. It can go something like this. Oh, you said that about me? Well, let's talk about how you can't keep a job. Oh, you said that about me? Let's talk about how much you drank at the last family reunion. And on it goes. In a family, we all have tons of ammo. We can take each other. It's, you know, assured mutual, what was that in, uh, back in the Cold War, Russia, U.S.? Uh, mutually assured destruction, I think it's called MAD, right? Everybody had plenty of bombs to blow everybody up. 
That's, that's pretty much what a family is. We all got plenty of nuclear bombs to blow each other up. And so when one person shoots a bomb, here comes the other one back. That's the way it goes. And here's where I think Jesus gives us the powerful example we should all seek to emulate. Here's Peter's summary of Jesus' non-retaliation. He says this, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You know, there's only ever been one person to walk this earth who actually had the moral high ground to say something in a negative critique about somebody else that would be completely accurate and that he would have the right to do it, and it was Jesus. And when Jesus was slandered, and when Jesus, you know, think of all the things the Pharisees said about him. I mean, they criticized his use of the Sabbath. They criticized his miracles. They criticized his teaching. There was even insinuation calling into question uh, his, his heritage and his mother and whether she was married when they conceived and all of this sort of rumor mill. I mean, Jesus faced terrible verbal slander. And yet, what did he do? He entrusted himself to his heavenly father. He cared more what God thought of him than what man thought or said about him. And I think this is something that we Christians, we need to get a little thicker hide about. We're way too easily verbally unsettled if somebody says something about us or criticizes us, especially if they criticize our faith or something like that. We get all a flutter and we feel like we've got to say something. You know, as a church, I will just say this to you. Sometimes people, you know, they'll say negative things about our church or about our leaders. And you might say, why doesn't the church fire back? Well, sometimes we have to, uh, but oftentimes we don't. And why not? Well, maybe we're here on an ethical point to explain some of that. Why not? Jesus entrusted himself to his heavenly father. You know, when people criticize us, one thing that we need to sort of learn to do is to ask the question, what is true here in what they're saying? You know, flattery can be insincere, but when people criticize us, you can know they're being genuine. It's straight from the heart. Uh, and in that criticism, generally speaking, there is some element of truth. And the wise person is the person who, in the midst of criticism, asks the question, what is true here? It's like free counseling when people criticize you. You are getting genuine input from others. What is true here? And sometimes slander should lead us to find the truth in it and to seek to reconcile over that truth. And it may be 1% of the 100% that this person is leveling against me, but that 1% is something that I need to make right. And I would encourage us to have a culture in our church to go to the other person and make the 1% right. Humble ourselves and go to them. And don't use it as a pretext to go off on their hypocrisy. You know, that's really true, that 1%. But can I just tell you, your 99% is nothing but hypocritical. Okay, that doesn't go well, does it? That's not the spirit of this at all. Try to make the 1% right. But in the end, what people say doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. What people think, it doesn't matter in the end. 
When, when, when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, you're not going to be worried about, you know, what other people say. I've heard this, the judgment seat of Christ described as where all, you know, our lives are put on the screen and everybody can see it. And we think, oh, no, not my mom. She's not going to know what I did when I was a junior in high school, is she? Trust me, in that moment, you aren't going to care one whit about what anybody else is thinking. You're going to care about what the one thinks. And what, what God says about us is the thing that matters. And there might be a bit of a comfort there, but really that should terrify us. Because he knows us way better than our harshest critic. And he knows our failures way more than anybody who has ever slandered us. What God thinks is what matters. But there is a comfort, I think, when we are wrongly accused in this. Entrust yourself to God's opinion. Cry out to him that your name would be cleared. Read the Psalms. So I was, I was reading Psalm 109 last night, and I just thought to myself, this is exactly, you know, the psalmist is writing, he's crying out for justice and all these things that his enemies are saying against him. Is that godly to do? Apparently it's in the Bible. Entrust ourselves to God. And let the character of your life over time silence the slander. You know, time has a way of showing what is true and, and what is not. And Proverbs has all kinds of admonitions about, you know, a life of integrity that is lived over time, uh, that, you know, we don't have to, f- to fear the accuser, right? Let your life, more than anything, extinguish the slander. Now, nobody's perfect, but if your character is consistently toward the things of God, if, if, if people see that you're genuine in your walk with the Lord and they sense in you a desire to please God even you know, when you don't, that is a way of communicating to people, even our critics, that we are genuine followers of Jesus. I have an over-the-top example here which should put our skirmish examples into perspective on what it means to overcome evil with good. And I'm acknowledging right now this is, this is an over-the-top example. On October 2nd, 2006, in an Amish community of Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania, a milk deliverer by the name of Charles Roberts entered into the one-room Amish schoolhouse. He ordered the teacher and the boys out, and he tied up the 10 remaining girls, and he said, I'm angry at God, and I need to punish some Christian girls to get even with him. In the process of the events that followed, he shot eight of the 10 girls before killing himself as the police arrived. This is a horrific crime, a terrible, terrible wrong. But to this day, the thing that makes the Nickel Mines school shooting stand out from, sadly, so many others that have happened in our country is the response of the Amish community to what was done against them. Before the day was out, I gotta backtrack a second. Why do I say this? Because the Amish culturally prize forgiveness, okay? That was a cultural value to them. And then this terrible crime happened. 
Before the day was out, Amish women had brought meals to the widow of the man who had shot the Amish girls. They publicly forgave this man for what he did. They raised money within their community to provide for the man's widow who now had suffered uh, financially and for her ongoing needs. Let that sink in for a second. That's how they responded to the wrong done against him. In response, the murderer's widow, Marie Roberts, wrote a letter to the Amish community, and in it she said this, Your love for our family has helped to provide the healing we so desperately need. Your compassion has reached beyond our family, beyond our community, and is changing our world. You want to change the world? Unconditional kindness when we're wrong is a massive change agent in a litigious, payback, get-even world that we live in. It says something powerful, more powerful. We can witness to people. We can tell them about Jesus. We can bring arguments in about the deity of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the this and the that and the this and the that. But when we respond with kindness, when we have been wronged, those words, those actions speak more powerful than, than our words. And I just want to ask today, who might God be calling you to express kindness? Somebody that has wronged you. The name that's been coming to your mind as I've been talking about this. Is there some way that you might show kindness in some practical way and to do it as an act of worship to Jesus? Can you do it? Why don't you ask God to help you? Do not be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good.